Hi, everyone. This is Andy Hagens, co-founder at Wealth Channel. On May 4th, we hosted our Alts Expo event at Wealth Channel. It was a great day and a great event hosted by my business partner, Jimmy Atkinson, who is a true pros pro, as always. We had a very large, engaged audience of high net worth investors and family offices who attended and participated in the event. It was really a lot of fun. So the podcast episode you're about to hear is the audio version of an educational panel that I had the pleasure to moderate at the event. This panel was titled Income Investing Strategies for High Net Worth Investors. And as I always say, income never goes out of style, but not all income is created equal. And in this panel, we talk about some of the very best income opportunities in the private markets, as well as how to find tax-advantaged income streams, because that's very important for high net worth investors and family offices. So I hope you enjoy the panel. And if you want to check out any of the other event recordings, just head over to the Wealth Channel website at wealthchannel.com. Thanks and enjoy. You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Thanks, Jimmy. Well, I always say income, it's like your blue blazer. It never goes out of style, right? That's what we're talking about today. Income investing strategies for high net worth investors. I have three true experts with me here today on this panel. I'm really excited. I'm going to introduce everybody first, and then we can dive in. First up is Nelson Chu, founder and CEO at Percent. Nelson, I have to say, I love the Percent platform, the demo you know that you gave us earlier. The technology, I just think is amazing. I wish every other asset manager would take note of how much you've invested in technology and usability. But I know also this topic, income investing, obviously very near and dear to your heart. Welcome to the panel today. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. Next up is Shana Sissel, who's founder and CEO at Bonrian Capital Management. Shana, you were on my podcast earlier this year, and I know that you are very passionate about alternatives and obviously income investing, a big part of alternatives. Welcome to the panel today. Oh, uh, you're you're on mute, Shana. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, now I. No problem. It pretty much happens uh, probably five or ten times every show, and including myself. Uh, last but not least, Kellyanne Winget, founder and CEO at Alternative Wealth Partners. Kelly, I know you come from the world of family offices now at Alternative Wealth Partners. You guys have a huge focus on not only income but tax efficient income, which is my favorite kind of income. Oh yeah! Welcome to the panel today. Thank you for having me. And uh, before we dive into the questions, I know we're a few minutes behind, but I want to make sure we have a full 40 minutes for the panel because we got some great topics today. I think uh, the email that Jimmy just sent out said this is our most anticipated panel of the day. I think that's true. I, I have to say, you know, uh, private credit, income investing, these are words I I've always heard, but I haven't heard them as much as I have in the last 12 months. This is very timely, but before we continue... Just want to mention, if you have any questions for myself, for our panelists, please use that Q&A functionality in your Zoom toolbar. Um, yada, yada. I'm not going to tell you how Zoom works. If you don't know by now, I can't help you. Um, Nelson, I want to start with you, though. You know, Earlier in our first panel, we talked about capital preservation, uh, which, which is another phrase that in the past six to nine months, I've heard probably more than I ever have in my life. But I've, again, the income 
space, the private credit space has really heated up. Why is there such a focus on income investing, especially from ultra wealthy investors and high net worth investors? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it comes down to the fact of where we are in the market cycle, right? We've had effectively a 10-year boom run where you kind of could throw darts at anything. It'll probably go up in the grand scheme of things. And now you're in a situation where that's definitely not the case. Certainly a lot of market volatility out there, a lot of uncertainty happening in the coming months ahead. Uh, we're definitely not out of the woods yet. We're seeing what's going on today. Uh, there is no shortage of regional banks that are in trouble, and this is not the end of it, right? So there's a lot more shoes to drop. So in that instance, investors, especially ultra high net worth ones, are looking for places that are a little bit more uncorrelated, a little bit more recession resilient. And you break down the different asset classes available to investors, you can obviously look at public equities, which is going to be a direct, I think, reaction to the Fed in real time whenever the meeting happens, right? And that's going to be effectively very volatile for the next few months of the year uh, going into 2024. Uh, you have venture and private equity, uh, which has seen significant markdowns in recent months because of the fact that they're being comped to public equity markets. The later stage you are, the more likelihood it is uh, that you're going to be kind of measured against what the multiples are on that front. And so you've seen venture investments, especially Series C, Series D, face major markdowns on that side. The other alternative is on the public market fixed income side. And that historically has been a situation where uh, they were thriving in low rate environments. They kept going, raising money, things like that. And now because rates are so high and duration is so long, these are 30-year maturities, a lot of these companies who need debt aren't coming out to market right now. They're just going to wait it out. And so you've seen new issuance volume on the public debt side drop by magnitudes year over year from 2022 and 2021 into 2023. So you're in a situation now where private credit and private debt is probably the most attractive asset class right now. And you're hearing that from the likes of Blackstone, Apollo, Aries, KKR, they're adding more into the private debt portfolio because it is uncorrelated, because it is providing additional alpha in an environment that is very, very unpredictable and it will continue to remain so for the coming quarters. Yeah, absolutely. That that's that's interesting. You know, it, you know, your point, private credit being the hottest thing out there right now. I mean, we we have several people presenting here today, Nelson, including you earlier. So I mean, I, I agree. I, I would broaden it out really to all forms of income investing. You know, my thing is to our panel earlier, and I got to pick the panel topics, right? So that's that's a fun job. But capital preservation during periods of economic uncertainty, always first and foremost in people's minds. But I want to get paid to wait, right? I just don't want to wait and be sitting on dry powder and losing 7% a year, or Kelly might say losing 11% a year, you know, depending on what we call inflation. Uh, but Shana, I want to turn to you next. You know, are you this this focus on income investing, I'm hearing it from retail high net worths. And, you know, I think we're seeing it also from family offices. How about advisors? Are are they more focused on income investing in this season? Uh, yes, I, I believe absolutely. And and it's interesting because I, I think the high net worth and ultra high net worth, one of the reasons that there's a, a focus on income, I'm not sure it's necessarily new. I just think now they're looking for different ways to do it. Uh, whereas before it was fairly simple to build some sort of fixed income ladder. But, you know, in recent years, in recent months with interest rates rising, they saw major uh, drawdowns in that those types of portfolios. So they're looking for ways uh, to generate income to pay their regular expenses. That's generally what I see. And when advisors start talking about income for some of those higher net worth individuals, they're talking about it as they want to put a specific amount of money that's going to generate a specific uh, income. Uh, and that's going to pay their general lifestyle, like their mortgage, their car payment, or those types of things. So then they can take the rest of their assets and put them in sort of that 
opportunity to have higher excess returns. And they're also very willing to, you know, not have general liquidity of the whole portfolio. What I think is happening now with advisors is with the advent and, you know, the growth in interval options. Uh, so you're getting the opportunity to participate through interval funds and some of the private credit markets that were not normally accessible for advisors and their clients in the past um, is creating, you know, continued and increased demand. And I'm starting to see from alternative asset managers a desire to bring interval type product to the market so that they can expand the number of people that can be part of their investor base. Uh, and I think that's a really interesting opportunity. I think it's also worth noting while private credit can be really interesting, there's other income producing options in this space. Um, I had somebody ask me recently about commercial real estate and I kind of stepped back and said, okay, it depends. Uh, on where we're talking here, because there is an income component to that. And while I'm not big on office space or, you know, the traditional commercial real estate, I think there's a true opportunity in some of the like triple net lease, some of the, you know, logistics related warehousing spaces where you have that steady sense of income, but you also have the diversifying um, component of the real estate aspect uh, of, of those businesses. So there's a number of different ways. And what I'm seeing from advisors is the desire to look at ways to produce a certain target amount of income for clients so that they can feel like they can have that stability to pay their, you know, ability, their lifestyle kind of things, the things they need to do to live uh, so that they can take advantage of markets as we're seeing the stress, this is actually a great opportunity to invest and have potential for future excess returns. We see this time and time again. So being able to do that, I think, allows them to take that short-term risk that there could be some volatility in the market, but the future potential is good, and they know they have the income there to kind of take care of the bills. Yeah, I love it. And that goes back to our keynote this morning, Sean talking about building up that passive income. And I mean, I think that's like everybody's dream, right? You know, whether you're high net worth, ultra high net worth, or even just getting started. I, I feel like that's a shared dream, right? Living off of passive income. So that's what we're talking about. Kelly, I, I want to turn to you. Really the same question, but I'm going to phrase it a little differently. You know, one theme I've picked up talking with you, you know, your background with family offices, uh, you know, some of your projects in energy is really building generational wealth, you know, thinking long-term, um, how, if I can use a baseball analogy, swinging at, at fat pitches, um, <laughs> how does income fit into that, you know, to building generational wealth? Is it a core part of the strategy or is it more something that folks are focused on right now, you know, to sort of get paid while they wait? I don't think income really has a lot to do with generating generational wealth, but, um, kind of piggyback off what they were talking about income, the, the need and want for income comes kind of traditionally at this age for most people. And we saw in the older generations, you had pensions and really healthy retirement plans. So income was was expected from those vehicles. In the Gen X uh, generation, there's a shift from that. The, the retirement plans aren't as healthy. So they're trying to find income opportunities from different investment vehicles. And then you get into the millennials and the Gen Zs who the Gen Zs have no plan, but the millennials are, <laughs> <laughs> they, 
you know, no offense. So crypto is a plan, Kelly. Come yeah, on. crypto is a plan. But, uh, <laughs> you know, the millennials are kind of seeing, um, you know, the experiences of their grandparents and then the experiences of their parents and then trying to balance what that looks like. Do I create income from my business or do I create income, future income from my retirement and my corporate job? Um, when we're looking at assets, you know, we're not necessarily focused on income. It's a bonus. But when we're structuring deals, it really is about how do we preserve our base and then multiply that over the next 10, 15 years through these investment strategies to create generational wealth? If income comes with that, great. We reinvest that income into more powerful investment vehicles. It's a blend of both. And I think that we see a big increase in income or people looking for income opportunities because a majority of the wealth is sitting in that 55 to 65 year old age range mm -hmm. and they need income because they're no longer working or they've sold their businesses. So it's just, I think, inherently what happens with this group of people at this age. Understood. Well, I don't know. I don't know if I speak for the group, but I want to have my cake and eat it too. You know, I want to preserve capital. Right. I want some income, but I'd also love to grow generational wealth. Well, on that note, on income, back to income specifically, Shana, what in your experience, you know, as an advisor working with other advisors and even just in your research, what are the best asset classes that historically are proven to generate income while also doing a good job at capital preservation? Oh, I mentioned real estate, and I think there are certain areas in the real estate market that's true. And, you know, Kelly kind of kind of jokingly and you kind of jokingly said crypto when you were talking about Gen Z, <laughs> the blockchain has actually resulted in some really interesting income producing opportunities. I, I once recently in the last year had looked at a product that was using blockchain to accelerate mortgage origination in uh, the conforming space which was offering very attractive yields with daily liquidity and uh, relatively low risk um, using sort of the whole idea of warehouse lines of credits that those mortgage um, uh, providers usually access through the banks and with the banking system having some unrest, this is a new and different, but using the blockchain to kind of accelerate that and provide better yields. So. We can laugh about crypto, but the application of the, the chain and on-chain type of investments is providing some really interesting income opportunities, which actually have relative stability and a lot more liquidity than, you know, traditionally when you looked at, you know, the traditional ways you would get income outside of credit was real estate, uh, some industrial or land. Um, and so, you know, there's opportunities there that I think are really interesting from that perspective. But then you have to worry about the tax implications. And so there's limitations on what would work in that sense. So there's always things to consider. Uh, but, you know, as far as advisors concerned, you know, I, I'd love to say they're looking to alternatives more um, for income, but they're still gaining comfort there. And so that's why I reference those interval funds that are becoming uh, more common, um, where we have a lot of managers who had traditionally only had, you know, private accredited investor hurdle funds with limited liquidity, doing a similar limited liquidity, but making it more vastly available to um, the everyday investor through those interval funds. Those have become very interesting because they've been able to kind of harness some of the alternative ways to generate income um, for investors in a way that's more accessible. And I think advisors have really started to um, be attracted to that idea. Uh, the, the 
the major concern obviously is having that vast understanding as we saw with B read on like the liquidity of these things. Mm -hmm. uh, and the fact that like, you may not be able to get your money out when you want. Most interval funds do have a cap on how much you can redeem at any time. Uh, so there's some education involved, uh, but they're certainly looking for other ways because as, as um, Nelson mentioned, you know, the equity markets, even the dividend producing equity markets, they actually haven't performed great. Um, dividend yield hasn't necessarily been the strongest um, factor in the last two years. Uh, and then as you look at the fixed income markets, there's a lot of volatility there and there's the potential for having some, some substantial downside even from here, even if you think the Fed is going to you know, hold rates where they are. Um, you're probably not going to get a lot of um, total return there other than the income. So the question becomes, you know, what are your other options? And that's kind of what we're seeing in the advisor space. Yeah. What are your options? I, I mean, I, I think that's really the question. And, you know, to your point, in some of these public liquid markets, it's hard to get income that even matches the inflation rate, you know, right. let alone exceeds it with any real return. Well, Nelson, I'll, I'll turn to you next. And I'll say it's okay to talk your book here, right? That we're all fans of private credit. Do you think private credit is, is the best way to produce substantial income while also preserving capital? Yeah, I think uh, so. I'll, I'll go into that in a second, but I want to actually at least highlight the, the crypto and the blockchain side of things as well that Shannon was mentioning. Uh, so not many people know this. But we actually started off as a crypto company. Uh, we thought that there would be an opportunity to, this is back in 2017, 2018, where there was an opportunity to kind of tokenize uh, securities on the private credit side and be able to create more liquidity and, and all of that stuff that you'd come to expect, right? And I think, unfortunately, um, cryptocurrency has become synonymous with Ponzi in some respects, especially the ones that are very yielding. They just have attributes that are just not meant to sustain any sort of run or it's going to get rug pulled by the founder or something like that. And so it's, it's created a, a situation where building trust in that environment is actually very, very difficult. And so I think for anyone listening in, it's almost like buyer beware in that instance and do your research on that because the likelihood of being a scam versus not is higher than most, right? Just, just in general. Yeah. Nelson, um, I mean, at all point, I'm not a crypto hater, right? I own some Bitcoin. So I just want to be clear on that. Just like even some of these larger, more stable things that I thought were more stable, like BlockFi even got into trouble. So I think you're exactly right. We're just in that period of, of rebuilding trust. And that probably takes some time. And I do want to point out, I agree completely with Nelson. I'm talking about implications of blockchain and on-chain types of things, which got is it. completely different. I actually talked to a, a potential client for us earlier today um, who does something really interesting on-chain. And it's not really crypto related. But I was very clear with them, like, you can't really use the word crypto if you want to <laughs> gain any traction in this space. But I do think the application of the chain, the blockchain, doing things and using the blockchain to accelerate or expedite certain things that can help generate more yield and have better liquidity is a positive. But to Nelson's point, the actual cryptocurrency aspect of it is like persona non grata right now. Yeah, just uh, I think be careful is kind of the name of the game, especially in this environment where there's more opportunities than ever and easier to set up something that feels and looks real, right? So just be very, very careful on that front. Um, on the private credit side, you know, I'll, I'll talk my own book a little bit, but also be, I think, objectively rational in how I explain this. Uh, yeah. But essentially, you know, private credit is something that I think uh, as an investor, you'd be remiss to not have in your portfolio. Do I recommend a 100% allocation of private credit? Most definitely not, um, by virtue of the fact that it is actually not as liquid as other things that are out there. Right? You could definitely buy you know, a public bond instrument that is way more liquid than private debt can ever be. Um, you know, get 
much lower yield than private debt's offering, but at the very least, it is something that is an alternative. So the ability to supplement whatever you have in your existing portfolio with private credit, I feel and we feel, is going to be very influential and important going forward as you start to kind of think through how to diversify in general market volatility, market volatile conditions. Private credit itself is also a bit more floating rate, right? So because the fact that these durations are a lot shorter, they're getting real-time reactions to the Fed and to the macro economy in real time. Just as an example, like we look at small business lending, that's a very common asset class in private credit. And so they've had just a rough go of it the last few years, right? Uh, back in pre-COVID times, you know, there was the average APY you would be able to get as an investor was about 10 to 11% investing in a basket of small business lending uh, loans. Once COVID hit, I mean, the question posed to everybody on the panel and on, on the call is, would you invest in a small business lender in April 2020 when all the businesses were shut down? I think the answer is probably not, realistically. And so investors wanted to get paid a lot more for the risk they were taking. So the yield spiked from 10 to 11% to 18% in like nine months. Because that was what it was take to get investors interested in that opportunity. And then once PPP loans hit and the business opened back up again and cash flows come through, the rates settled at around 15%, right? So interesting enough in our market, as we were seeing it, there was still a heightened sense of uncertainty from investors that they wanted to get a paid a premium for, uh, even investing in small business lending in like peak hype cycle of 2021. And then now the Fed raised rates again, then, you know, they're feeling a lot, uh, the rates are going back up uh, as a result of just the natural spread that investors want against the risk-free rate. Um, so private credit gives you that real-time update and real-time reaction from a rate standpoint to be compensated for the risk that you're taking, which is just a good thing to have in this environment relative to other instruments that may be out there that are more like either fixed rate or consistent uh, than what you're seeing in other places. Yeah, totally. And, you know, from my standpoint, private, just speaking as an individual investor, private credit feels more to me like a true market, you know, buyers and sellers agreeing on the price of something which uh, I don't always see that, you know, in the public markets where it feels more like the, the Fed is deciding on the price of something. And I'm going to stipulate before I move on to Kelly, I'll stipulate Nelson. I agree that I think private credit deserves a place in probably most high net worth portfolios, maybe all. But Kelly, one thing I love about your company, Alternative Wealth Partners, I think it's in the name, is that, you know, you all look at alternative investments, alternative ways of building wealth, alter alternative sources of income. What are some of the other proven asset classes that you would look to to provide income um, beyond private credit? So one of the things that we do is we create blended portfolios of these assets. So we're diversified across basically everything. Um, you know, our strategy is diversification. And that's beyond just, oh, I'm in these different types of stocks or I'm in real estate and also commercial real estate and also mobile homes. It's <laughs> you have to be diversified in real estate, in energy, in stocks, in bonds, and all across all asset classes. That's diversification. So when we build our portfolios, we're really focused on, you know, how much exposure do we have in each asset? And then is that balance based on what's going on? in the world. And uh, so, you know, we're heavily invested in energy. Obviously I'm five generations in oil and gas. So it's just inherently what I like. Um, it definitely hedges when there's a lot of crazy volatility in the, in the public markets. Um, I was one of those people heavily invested in oil and gas in April of 2020 when it went negative 40. So, you know, I'm really enjoying my 350% upside. Um, but we're, we're also diversified in the real estate space. The fact that we're investing in both the businesses and the real estate we're developing. Um, this gives investors kind of the upside as controlling how much appreciation we can see in that real estate because we're directly involved in how profitable the business is inside of it. 
and then structuring all of those inside of you know tax efficient vehicles separating oil and gas from the other assets so that we can take full advantage of the deduct the tax deductions in oil and gas and then also in real estate putting some of that portfolio in an opportunity zone that helps you know that tax wrapper piece of what we do um I think this is a really incredible time for people to get involved in alternatives, even though it's been around since the beginning of time and whether investors have had it in their portfolio or not. Um, you know, they're with the kind of just people looking for options outside of the stock market. Mm-hmm. We've gotten a lot more uh, spotlight than we have in the last 10 or 15 years, but uh, where I've been. Uh, so it's kind of nice to see investors start poking around and feeling a little bit more confident, spreading their money outside of you know traditional uh, financial products. Yeah, I agree. That's a good point. It's, alternatives have been around since the beginning of time, right? I mean, we can uh, probably go back to the Bronze Age. I think uh, alternatives have been around longer than publicly traded stocks. Yeah. On that note, and I think I think maybe everyone has alluded to this already, but this is my instinct as an investor. And I think this is proven out, you know, I guess it depends on the market, right? So with with REITs, for instance, you know, in some sectors of the real estate market, I might say, hey, there's a discount in the publicly traded market, but certainly with fixed income versus private credit or some of these alternative sources of income, uh, you know, I think you should compare the publicly traded markets with the private markets. You're never going to get totally apples to apples. And 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 then say, are there better opportunities in the private markets or public markets right now? Shana, let's start with you. I know you you know you work with you've mentioned interval funds. You've mentioned a lot of yeah. liquid type products. I know advisors like liquid yeah. products. Do you think there are better opportunities for income in private markets yes. or public markets, or does it depend? So I love how you frame that because one of the things that I spent a lot of time educating uh, advisors on is how to frame the alternative universe. Because it's for so long, it's just been everything outside of the public equity and fixed income markets is alternatives and they are their own thing. But I've tried to frame it as no, like credit is credit. Equity is equity. You know, private and public should be actually compared to each other. Exactly what you're saying. And when you think about your allocation to credit, your allocation to fixed income should include both private and public credit and the same thing in equity. And then when you start thinking about alternatives, you start thinking about like truly things outside of that space, whether it be physical real estate, because I don't consider REITs uh, alternative. They, they trade on equity exchanges. They have equity beta. Uh, or, you know, uh, there are all kinds of things that fall outside of private credit, of credit and equity that mm-hmm. do actually fall in the alternative bucket, you know, physical, um, physical assets, land, uh, infrastructure, things of that nature. So, you know, when we kind of look at it, we look at it from that. So when I look at credit and income, that is in that fixed income part. And I'm going to look at both private and public markets. And I always tell advisors that if your clients can invest in the private markets, the accessibility and the types of options you have to Kelly's point where you've got to diversify in each part, right? Mm-hmm. Are, are so much broader, right? And there, you know, I had somebody say recently, the way you look at uh, private markets is by standard deviation. And I, I kind of laughed because they're artificially low standard deviation because they don't have daily uh, pricing. Um, 
Yeah, like who who knew that B who knew B REIT and all these private REITs are just outperforming exactly. public so REITs by thirty percent? Yeah, it's it's insane. I think that you have to kind of point out <laughs> that like it's going to reduce your volatility in terms of your experience, but the underlying assets are equally as volatile. Just, yeah, you just get the benefit of not having to mark to market mm -hmm. uh, on a daily basis. So you know these are things you have to consider. Um, so I do encourage advisors to talk to their clients as much as possible about you know, diversifying outside of the public markets in the traditional spaces where they allocate equity and fixed income. And in particular to Nelson's point, the opportunity set in the alternative space of what you can invest in to generate income, you know, it could be anything from like what he was talking about, small, small business lending, but there's also opportunities to get access to higher up in the capital structure that you can't get in the public markets, right? Through like mm -hmm. mezzanine financing and bridge stuff, um, asset-based where you, you're physically backed by some sort of asset. It might be chairs and computers, but it's assets that you, you have, you know, a little more security there. And those are just not available in the public markets. You really do have to go to the private markets to do that. So there's a benefit to doing that. The problem is that lack of liquidity and you have to get your client comfortable there. So I always find that the best way to introduce them is with things that they can actually connect with tangibly. You know, Peter Lynch always said, buy what you know. So finding ways to find income producing private credit type products that can actually be tangible to the client uh, so that liquidity doesn't become like the biggest thing um, is a big part. But one caveat, and I think B-Read really is an important part of this um, and, you know, kind of has hijacked the story a little bit as far as advisors getting into this private market space is, um, you know, understanding the framework and the liquidity constraints. Um, I think the problem is BREIT was heavily marketed to the advisor market through a lot of advisor-driven access platforms. So the vast majority of the investors in BREIT were advisors who don't understand or didn't understand coming in this concept of liquidity. So as an advisor, and when I work with advisors, one of the first things I talk about is that, and you really have to frame that and have your return expectations and understand and make sure your client understands that they might not have access to this. Shana, can I, can I get any traction? I think we mentioned this on our podcast we did. Can I get any traction with my pregnancy metaphor? You're liquid, you're yes. illiquid, you're pregnant, yes. Or you're not pregnant. If I hear I'm half liquid. I'm a little bit liquid. I'm no, like, no, you're, you're, you're fully illiquid. liquid or you're not. And yes. you got to make sure there's some comfort there. But yeah. I think you'd be surprised to hear that the average person is actually comfortable with some illiquidity. It's just how much that matters. Absolutely. Well, Nelson, I'm going to tee you up with a softball pitch here, but it's a sincere one. Okay. And disclosure, you know, I do own bond funds. I have some, you know, of course I own fixed income, but I still own bonds. But just in general, aren't bonds just a terrible deal? I mean, right now, they just feels like they have been for a while. When you compare them to private credit, the spread just, it doesn't seem intuitive to me. It seems almost unreasonable. You know, I'm, I'm not counseling everyone to just sell all their bond funds, but I, I feel like, you know, that you're probably sitting in the very best asset class for me to ask this question. You know, the opportunity in the publicly traded equivalent to private credit, you know, sh should investors be tactically allocating more than they typically would to private credit? Kelly, you should just join our team at this point. But uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I think the, the reality is, uh, I think you're right. Uh, and that spread 
and that delta has never been as wide as it is now, I think, just based on how things are performing. And so from our perspective, um, you know, this is kind of general recommendation as well. And piggyback what everyone's saying, like you should be looking at opportunities, platforms and assets that at least give you the optionality or at least the visibility into underlying asset performance. So you can actually see how it's actually doing and how whether liquidity is possible and how it should be priced at, right? Like that's critically important. And so when when we went and set down this path, we saw that the in traditional private credit, the lockups, while they're not 30 years, they're still like five, 10 years. That's actually pretty lengthy for an average retail investor. And so we set out to create a product that was pretty unique in the sense that you could do nine month products or 12 month products with like call options built in where there's actually liquidity within one month or two months or three months, right? And that is inherently liquid in the structure and not necessarily like physically liquid from you know a tradability standpoint. We thought that was something that was very important for investors. So we built that into it. And then when, when Kelly was talking like diversification, you know, we have the opportunity. I don't recommend anyone just invest like all their money into a single deal in private credit that's backed by some sort of computers and shares or whatever, right? Like that's generally still pretty risky in the grand scheme of things. But the ability to get diversified exposure through a basket of products or like a, like we have a, what's called a blended note that gets you like, you know, 10, 15 borrowers within a single note, that's helpful, right? So the ability to get optionality and find platforms that give you that optionality is critically important when you're making investment decisions uh, to be able to just better understand how you're getting into it and also protect yourself in the downside because private markets are still risky at the end of the day. There is no doubt about that, right? So you have to kind of understand that going into it, but you can do um, best practices that are applicable elsewhere in terms of diversification, in terms of research, in terms of um, like monitoring performance to help protect yourself against that situation. So I agree, public bond, public uh, fixed income is not that great right now in the grand scheme of things. I think private market fixed income is fantastic, um, but just be mindful that there's always things that you want to make sure you understand before you go into it. If you go in with eyes wide open, you'll see so much opportunity that you would not be able to get anywhere else across the capital stack. Um, as, as Shane was mentioning. So there is a lot here um, to, to get invested into and you'll be able to outperform a lot of the players. On the, even like private credit though, like there is levels, right? So for example, Apollo, Blackstone with the, all these different credit funds that they're offering, they're barely beating inflation at this point because the funds are so large. Like they literally have to invest in things that are so large that perform so stably that they can't really get alpha at this point. So you're seeing a lot of family offices go down market and try and find opportunities. It's difficult to go down market. You have to evaluate managers who don't have a lot of history. You have to evaluate borrowers who don't have the performance you'd expect, but the alpha is there. So being able to find platforms that kind of get you that exposure in a meaningful way, but in a controlled fashion is, is pretty important. And I think, you know, the one time I will talk my own book today is that we do offer that, but again, you should actually take a look and do the research yourself. Uh, and I think you'll like what you see at the very least. Yeah, you know, I, I, it's interesting that you talked about, you know, even in the private credit space, you know, some of these really big players, they have these funds that get so big that they're barely beating inflation. That leads me to my last question of the day, maybe the most important one. I mean, I'm always focused on triple net returns, right? Not, I'm not talking about triple net leases, triple net returns, returns net of inflation, net of fees, net of taxes. And if if a bond fund is yielding 6% and it's in a taxable account and the expense ratio is 50 basis points or 100 basis points, well, taxes are going to eat 200 basis points. And then by the time I add in inflation, like we're, we're far negative, right? We're not even preserving capital. So it's just, to me, you, you, a high net worth investor has to really build in that triple net mindset into their, the way they're you know, evaluating investments. 
So Kelly, turning to you, I mean, obviously you have this family history in energy, oil and gas, obviously a lot of tax advantage investing going on in those market segments. You mentioned opportunity zones, stacked tax incentives. I, I believe you might be wired this way as well, where you're, <laughs> you're, you're viewing everything through that lens. How can investors really protect against paying excessive fees and taxes and really max, maxing out those triple net returns? Um, well, speaking from somebody who's had to do their own taxes since they were 15, because both my parents were accountants and CPAs, um, you know, most people are learning how to change a tire on their car. I had to do taxes. Um, everything that we do is tax efficient. And I think that it's the most important part of your kind of financial decision-making team before anybody else is getting yourself a tax strategist or a really good CPA who can get creative and has a background in the investment space. Not just somebody that can prepare and file your taxes, but somebody that actually understands the tax code or at least a portion of the tax code that, um, you know, that relates to you and the type of things that you invest in. So if you like real estate, find a CPA or tax strategist that understands the tax benefits ex that exist in real estate vesting. If you want to get into energy, there's people that specialize in that. And there's a lot of different tax strategies you can take when you're starting to look at where do you put pieces of your portfolio. In the alternative space, I think that the um, you know recommended exposure is somewhere between 10 and 25% of your portfolio should be in alternatives, depending on where you are in the risk world. But um, you know, for most people, writing a million dollar check into an alternative asset needs to be spread out among a couple different things. And at least half of those things need to be tax efficient. But before you start investing in things that can have these high multiple returns that alternatives have, either high interest on um, things that you're loaning money out to, or these high equity multiples when you're invested in like gross stage private equity or venture capital, when you can have a 10 to 100x return on your investment, you need to get yourself prepared structure-wise before you start funding these deals. So if you could do a Roth conversion, doing Roth conversions, you know, putting yourself in some sort of tax-free vehicle like opportunity zones, investing in tax deductions, uh, like through oil and gas and real estate, um, you just want to set yourself up correctly um, structure-wise before you start making those allocations. I think it's the best way to kind of tackle that problem headfirst. Yeah, no, I like that. And, you know, thinking of you know, some forms of income might be, you know, higher income, you know, from the investor point of view, like private credit is going to be higher income. Well, if there's not a tax advantaged way to invest in that at the product level, maybe there is at my, you know, my level where I'm using my IRA to invest in private credit. And then, right. you know, other, other forms of investments with lower income, those are in my taxable accounts. Shane, I'll give you the final word here. Obviously you're working with a lot of advisors. Hopefully they're keeping tax planning and, and triple net returns, you know, front of mind when they're investing on behalf of their clients. Are there any, you know, tips and tricks in it, especially as it relates to income that high net worth should be thinking about? Uh, well, you touched on one of the main ones is just looking at what account you put the investments in. Uh, so one of the things, you know, all advisors should be doing is not looking at what the allocations are within like a single account structure, but like across the assets. And then, you know, putting into the taxable accounts things that are tax efficient uh, to take advantage of that. And then the things that aren't tax efficient going into the non-taxable accounts. And so that's a big component of it. Um, obviously, there's a number of different things you have to consider. Um, 
I think one of the interesting things Nelson brought up was like going down uh, away from like the big names like Blackstone and Apollo and things of that nature. I think doing that actually gives you the opportunity to find things that might be more tax efficient because there's a greater focus on that by the underlying um, asset manager because they're trying to differentiate themselves. Um, and so there's there's a real opportunity there. The other thing I, I'll mention, which isn't really tax related, but I think it's an important component of that on that same note is you know, at, at Bonrian, we work with both advisors and asset managers who are looking to just have better traction in that advisor distribution channel. And one of the things we really talk about is like accessibility. So the other benefit to going down away from those big names, especially for the advisors in, in, uh, in the space, is that you get more handholding, more personalization and more individual support and access than you would by investing in a Blackstone. Yes, it's easier to sell a Blackstone or a Carlisle or, you know, an Apollo to a client. I don't want Blackstone. Forget Blackstone. Give me uh, the so, other stuff. But Dana. it's easier sometimes because it's a name. <laughs> but I actually think the the better experience on every level uh, happens when you go down more uh, because um, they'll, they're much more likely to service and access become a big component. And in the same manner, a lot of those firms are willing to do more customized solutions to help you be more tax efficient. Uh, so they're more likely to work with you as a partner and create solutions that work for you, your client and their tax situation. Uh, so that that is really a key thing that people have to consider is is that, um, you know, working with partners that want to work with advisors, because I, I would argue uh, and I don't know if any of my fellow panelists would agree, but there are a number of asset managers that don't want to deal with the advisor market. They think it's too high maintenance. See, <laughs> uh, they think it's too high maintenance. Um, so you want to find partners that care, um, and um, there are they exist in there. That, that that's I think just as important a component of this discussion as any of the other things. Uh, but when you do find that, they're able to work with you on things like targeting certain income uh, amounts, uh, getting a better comfort level with the underlying and having better tax efficiencies. Cause there's many opportunities, you know, Kelly being in the energy space, um, I made a lot of money on MLPs back in like 2010. Um, and you have royalty trusts where they're like tollways. So you, there's an income component to that and it can be a really interesting mix. And in many ways, the structure of those things can be quite tax efficient. And people don't actually make those connections, not all of them, but there are some that actually do think about that, but they have some complexity. So it's important to involve an advisor and to Kelly's point, get a tax professional that understands it because there are complexities there that are very specific to that investment. And you could end up in trouble because you just don't have a tax professional that understands those idiosyncrasies. So if you are going to play in the space, finding the right accountant and tax person is equally as important, but a lot of advisors actually are starting to build those um, relationships so that there can be a component of a holistic approach, even if they don't internally work for the firm. Absolutely. Shane, I love it. Let's not leave free money on the table, right? It's a hundred basis points that extra that I earn in return because of tax planning is just as valuable as a hundred basis points of any other form of alpha, right? And I know I, I totally agree. I take your point with these more boutique asset managers. I, when I use the term boutique, for, for me, it's a compliment because it typically does mean more creativity, more willingness to, to work with you one-on-one, -on -one, uh, a, lot, a lot of times more transparency. You know, you can talk to Kelly Winget, you know, you can talk to Nelson, you know, 
asset managers who are accessible, who actually want to talk with their investors versus setting up six layers so that they never, ever have to talk to you in any way, shape, or form. Well, I know we're running out of time, but tremendous insights here. Uh, I want to thank all of our expert panelists, Shana Sissel, Kelly Winget, and Nelson Chu. And Jimmy, I'm going to turn it back to you for our final few presentations here. Well, thank you, Andy. And thanks to all of our panelists. I'm going to gently escort you off the stage right now. Thanks so much, Kelly Nelson and Shana. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.